this is and was a big case. We knew uh, that it was a big case and it has these, these uh, terrifically rich uh, law enforcement and social justice and criminal justice um, uh, layers uh, going through it uh, and ought to be uh, discussed, but it ought to be done fairly and ought to be done on both sides. With USA Today Network Wisconsin, I'm Shane Nyman. And I'm Doug Schneider. This is Making a Mania, the Stephen Avery saga and why we're obsessed. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A. Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. It's a podcast exploring why the case made famous by making a murderer grab the attention of the world and hopefully what we can learn from it. By now, we've all seen the Netflix series. We know the ins and the outs. Maybe you're a hardcore Redditor, or maybe your digging stopped when the 10th episode ended. But either way, you don't care about updated gossip about the Avery and Dassey families. Whatever the case, we all know the story. What we're not here to do is rehash all that. Nor are we here to make guesses about whether or not two juries more than a decade ago got verdicts right or got them wrong. What we are here to do is pull back on all this, the series, the case, and the surrounding mania, to see what we can learn about it all. There's so much interest because there are so many layers. We want to peel back and examine them like nobody else has done. Perhaps no one in Making a Murderer, except maybe Stephen Avery, is more polarizing than Ken Kratz. It's almost impossible to watch the documentary and feel nothing about Kratz, the district attorney who prosecuted Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey. If you're a guilter, someone who agrees with the jurors who convicted Avery and his nephew, Kratz may well be a hero. You might view him as someone who made it so justice got done. Two bad men committed a horrific murder of an innocent woman and went to prison for a long time because of it. The moral need for punishment as a result of the gruesome murder in this case, coupled with the danger that the court believes you pose to society based on your prior history, and the premeditated and senseless nature of the homicide in this case compels the court to conclude that you should not be free again. For the foregoing reasons on the first degree intentional homicide charge, the court sentences you to life in prison. If you question the guilt of either Avery or Dassey, or you disapprove of some of the methods the prosecutor used during the case, or if you're familiar with the bizarre turns his career took years after his case ended, Kratz is your arch-villain. And he knows that. Kratz apologizes for some of the things he's done, both during the case and after. If he had to try the case again, he says he wouldn't have conducted that bizarre press conference, the one in which he laid out the gruesome allegations of what took place during the killing of Teresa Halbach. Well, my biggest, uh, my biggest regret is the, uh, the press conference that I had on, uh, on March 2nd, uh, the day after uh, the um, Brendan Dassey interview occurs. Uh, and Brendan is charged um, at the time, and, and I, I'm trying to hearken back to or, or have people remember back, the um, requirement for or the request for information about this case was at such a high level, such a fevered pitch, um, and the media was um, presenting evidence that not only uh, wasn't all true, um, but was, uh, could be very disturbing uh, for the family. When these facts came out, I had a very difficult decision about what to do with it. I had some options. One option was to you know, file the complaint and just give the media a copy of, of the details in the complaint and right. let them 
report what they were going to. Uh, another uh, obligation that an elected official has uh, uh, sometimes is to uh, inform the media to the extent that you are allowed uh, the facts of the new case. And so when I chose to do that in a press conference format, rather than just uh, giving them the complaint, um, that was a mistake. It was a mistake uh, uh, personally for me. Uh, my goal was to uh, release fewer details rather than more details. Uh, my goal was to um, provide a sound bite, I think is the term that they use, uh, that was going to satisfy the media about uh, what happened, and then they wouldn't get into some of the more salacious parts of the complaint and as bad as uh, the facts were that I uh, reported uh, that day. I was simply reading uh, uh, from the details of the complaint uh, and, uh, and should have, in retrospect, just handed them the complaint and let them discuss it. Kratz also hopes you'll believe that he regrets, deeply regrets, the text messaging scandal that followed a few years later. That's the one that caused his once stellar legal career to come crashing down around him after he tried to date a woman who was the victim in a domestic violence case he'd prosecuted, to the point where he says he's now retired from the legal profession. But he also wants you to know something else. Despite the mistakes, despite the inconsistencies, and despite the confusion raised by 10 episodes making a murderer, he's convinced that juries got things right, that the people in prison are the right ones. They're the people who killed Teresa Halbach. Since closing his law practice in Superior after a barrage of online hate messages from making a murderer viewers, Kratz has kept a low profile moving back to Appleton and getting remarried. He sat down with USA Today Network Wisconsin for an interview that lasted almost two hours. Ken Kratz, thank you for being here. Good to be here, thanks for having me. Our interview touched on a range of subjects, everything from making a murderer, naturally he dislikes it and declined to be interviewed for season two, to Kratz's fall from grace. We also talked about his attempts to resurrect his career by moving to Superior and opening an office there and his life and time since closing up shop and moving back to the Fox Valley. This episode of the podcast won't hit on everything we discussed with Kratz. Instead, we'll focus on how the Netflix documentary portrayed the case that he presented against Stephen Avery and Brenda Dassey. You can call this episode... Ken Kratz versus Making a Murderer. Number of episodes, Making a Murderer acts like a good defense attorney. It works to create reasonable doubt in viewers' minds. Doubts about what Kratz is telling jurors took place on the day Halbach made that faithful drive to Avery's auto parts yard. Doubts about whether the police played by the rules when gathering evidence against Avery. Doubts about whether detectives played fair when they interrogated Dassey, a frightened 16-year-old with a low IQ, who was questioned without a lawyer or a parent in the room. But with the documentary as a defense attorney, Kratz responds like the prosecutor he was when the Halbach murder went to trial. If the filmmakers are willing to set up pillars on which to argue that Avery and Dassey aren't guilty, Kratz is more than willing to knock them down. Kratz acknowledges that viewers can have questions about what happened in the case, about what the filmmakers documented. But he's insistent that the police, the prosecutor, and the jury got the basics right. Avery and Dassey murdered Teresa Halbach. The uh, Wisconsin cops did an extraordinarily good job in their investigation, and I believe we did a good job in the prosecution, but of course uh, that story 
is inconsistent with the narrative of, of making a murderer and so uh, it is, uh, like I said, uh, not reported or at least uh, drastically underreported. And Kratz had some arguments of his own. He says something we've heard from a previous guest of the podcast, that things are not always as they seem. Here, he's saying the filmmakers were dishonest when they had a sheriff sergeant, Andrew Colburn, appear to admit in court that deputies knew Halbach's car was on Avery's property well before it was officially found. And so on episode five of Making a Murderer, um, uh, there's a uh, exchange between Dean Strang, the defense attorney, and Andy Colburn, uh, where Dean Strang asks, well, um, uh, if you would have been looking at this license plate, uh, you can agree, can't you, that that would look suspicious? And Andy kind of reluctantly answers yes uh, to that. And he says, well, you shouldn't have been looking at it because you know it wasn't found until the 5th of November. And Andy uh, says yes, and there's dramatic music, and, and, uh, and I have a clip uh, uh, of that. Well, uh, the, the problem was that never happened, that exchange never occurred in real life. Not at all. In other words, the question was asked, the question was asked uh, basically, doesn't that look suspicious? In which case, in, in the trial, I interposed an objection. Judge Willis sustained the objection, and they moved on to a different question. Well, uh, undaunted by the actual facts, the, uh, the filmmakers harvested an answer given by Sergeant Colburn later in his examination and they spliced that answer to the question, doesn't it look suspicious, where uh, we now know in episode five, Andy reluctantly answers yes. And so the, um, the decision or the willingness to not only report what happened, but a willingness to create a narrative, to advance your position, your movie, to make uh, the cops look suspicious or sketchy or to make the prosecution look inept uh, is something that, uh, again, I don't think happened in real life. Kratz uses the term splicing. He says an editor took the witness's answer to one question and played it right after the defense lawyer asked a different question. It looks like the speaker testified to something he didn't. Kratz played us a video to back up his claim that Colborn didn't testify that cops acted suspiciously. The series sent the Twitterverse into spasms over the hole in the cap of the vial of Avery's blood that was stored at the county's courthouse. Did that mean someone tampered with it or planted some of the crime scene? And Jerry Buting says, um, well, one name keeps coming up. It's, uh, it's, it's Lieutenant Link. And then I look, and then there's this transmittal form. And the transmittal form, you know, was that they had to retest the blood. So that, that suggests to the audience that the transmittal form is the smoking gun. It shows that Link touched the blood, right? And you guys remember that. I think it was from episode four. The very end of episode four, he does that. And he says, whoa, there's this name that keeps coming up, Jim Link. And, and, here's a, and they show the transmittal form, and they cut away from it real fast, right? Well, what you don't know, here's what Jerry Buting's saying. There is a transmittal form. That's correct. The blood was in the clerk's office. That's correct but the transmittal form doesn't send the blood. It sends fingernail clippings and hairs only. They never touch the blood. And the transmittal form says hair clippings, or hair and fingernail clippings. So when Jerry says, oh, his name keeps coming up, there's a transmittal form, there is. And then he goes and talks about the blood. He suggests to the audience that he transmitted the blood. 
He never says that. But they present it as if that's the smoking gun, right? So is that honest? Well, I don't, you know, that's grayer because, because it's, it's an explanation for how he touches the blood, but he never does touch the blood, and they know it. Jerry knows it because it's never even brought up in court. This, this purple top tube in the transmittal is never brought up because by that time, Jerry knows he never does touch the blood vial. That link never is involved at all. Well, why isn't the audience told that? Why instead does Jerry Buting go on this camera and say, whoa, there's this one name, there's this transmittal form? It's bullshit. It's actual creation of a narrative that never happens meant to deceive. If it's meant to deceive, then it's probably not fair and probably it's not a documentary. Another issue was the discovery of Callbach's car key in Avery's bedroom, an effort that took multiple searches. Surely the cops planted the key, right? That's what the filmmakers seem to be asking or hoping the viewers will ask. If the narrative was true, that this was the seventh thorough search of the bedroom, then that would make sense. Um, what the actual facts, though, are, and what nobody's been told, is although on the first night when they were looking for Teresa, on the, the 5th of November, the, uh, the bedroom uh, was searched, uh, the uh, bookcase in which the key fell out of was never searched again until, uh, until the 8th of, of November. Why and not? so although officers went back into the residence uh, for targeted purposes, for targeted seizures, they took the computer, they went back and they took a gun, they went back and they took some documents uh, from the table. None of these were searches. These were all entries that were made for targeted purposes. Every day after the searching would occur in this 40-acre crime scene, the officers would uh, all get together and they would uh, debrief. And then the next day they would decide what to do the next day. Well, in those cases, uh, uh, the lead investigators would tell officers, okay, now I want you to go back and get this and this and this because things were developing. We were developing the uh, investigation. What was important uh, was just uh, coming to light uh, at the time. And so when they would go back and they would make these targeted seizures, although the making a murder people are, are happy to, and the defense attorneys are happy to call those searches, they're not searches at all. Uh, there was another thorough search and when they went back or when they were sent back to do the thorough search of the bedroom, including in the furniture, including looking for uh, these smaller items. Uh, that was when the uh, bookcase was, uh, was kind of jostled around. Uh, we know the key uh, falls out the back. The jury uh, got to hear that whole story. The jury got to see how this bookcase was kind of turned. The jury got to see the half inch gap in the back of this bookcase where the key falls out from the back, and so it's not a magic key, or it's not magic at all, it's gravity. It's gravity that explains how this key ends up uh, on the floor on the 8th. Mm -hmm. Now, the uh, officers that were in the room at the time, uh, Officer Colburn, uh, Officer Link, and Officer Kaharski um, were uh, present, and they then viewed and said, my goodness, there's a, there's a key uh, on the floor as the cabinet just kind of moved back uh, from uh, for one over the key was. so. Uh, once you understand the whole, um, the whole story, the uh, entire um, events as they unfolded, as the jury was, once you're shown all of that, uh, the mystery is kind of uh, taken out of that. Of course, 
making a murderer never uh, never shows the the gap in the uh, the back of the uh, the the bookcase. Uh, they don't uh, explain uh, the answers as they were given both by uh, Sergeant Kaharski and uh, and Sergeant Coburn at the time. And so um, again, making a murderer told the viewers, showed the viewers exactly what they wanted you to see. The filmmakers painted a picture of the bedroom being searched seven times before cops find the key. The implication is that there were, were seven complete searches done of the small bedroom in the trailer in which Avery lived. Kratz says that there, there weren't seven full searches. There were uh, quick, uh, a quick initial search, there was a secondary search looking for specific things, there were some other searches, and so it wasn't like there'd been a half dozen searches before the key turned up. That said, um, I've run this past some detectives I know, and their response is that, hey, you might not find a, such a key piece of evidence the first time. Maybe you don't find it the second time you search, but if by the third time you haven't found it and then it shows up much later, that really raises questions about was it really there. Key piece of evidence. I see what you did there. Wow. The heart of Kratz's argument is that when we say there were seven searches, well, what defines a search? if law enforcement went into the trailer to collect every piece of technology and then out the door they went, that qualifies as a search, but that doesn't mean that they were lifting up every piece of clothing and, and every nook and cranny in the, in the trailer at that time. So his argument is the first time that they really went over the trailer with a fine tooth comb and were, were shaking every piece of furniture, apparently that is when the key fell out of its little hiding spot. Something that impressed me right from the get-go when Kratz came in was he's clearly a very intelligent and articulate person. Uh, he also seems like he's the kind of person who has almost a photographic memory. As we're sitting here for two hours talking about events and conversations, he's recounting very specific details about the third time so-and-so was interviewed or you know almost to the extent of on the fourth day of the trial this happened or th things like that where he he remembers it seems like he remembers everything that happened in both of these cases and it also seemed like he has paid a lot of attention to making a murderer that's interesting a lot of this clearly has has defined his life in the past few years and made it so that he is not practicing law, he's not living in the part of the state in which he chose to live uh, about the time that the documentary came out. Um, a lot of what you just said makes it, makes a good case for his being an effective prosecutor. You can see a guy that meticulous with that level of, of eye for detail being somebody who, yeah, I can I can vote for this guy. You know, he he's a guy who probably won his press conferences. He's and and now he's in a way, especially if he continues to not practice law, 
trying the case, albeit in the court of public opinion, that may be the most important case of the the rest of his life. Boy, hey, we could come full circle and wrap it up with that. Um, yeah, you can de- you can definitely see why he was effective in the courtroom during his time. He's not somebody who needs to be tied to a notepad or a set of bullet points to argue his point. He's got the facts and the figures and the stats and the details stashed away in his brain and he can access them in an instant and he can argue his case. And that's the kind of stuff that that plays very well with juries. Criminal trials, despite the way they're they're portrayed on Law and Order and and other TV shows and, and movies are often deadly dull and the guys who really connect with jurors are the people who are animated, who can make the case without notes, who don't have to keep stopping and walking back to the desk and, and, and reading from a script. Um, he's really an interesting guy, and it will be interesting to see where his life goes from here. And he certainly seemed to me to be more at peace than perhaps he had been certainly during the trial and in media accounts after the documentary came out. And and in fact, he says quite clearly that that he's a a changed person in, in certain ways. But I'm different. You can tell I'm different. I'm not the same guy I was. I'm not, I'm not that, uh, that narcissistic uh, prosecutor, that, uh, that person that was, uh, you know, very full of themselves, but also um, really not caring about uh, people or others around them or himself very much. I'm not that guy anymore. Later this season on Making a Mania, we'll hear from former Avery defense lawyer Dean Strang about what he thinks can be done to improve the criminal justice system. We'll delve into the fascinating topic of false confessions and get at why anyone would ever admit to a crime they didn't commit. Why would they do that, Doug? We're going to find out. Learn more about this podcast, about making a murderer, or about the cases of Stephen Avery and Brenda Dassey at postcrescent.com, where our journalists have been writing about these topics for years. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Making a Mania is written and produced by Shane Nyman and Doug Schneider. William Glasheen and Jim Rosendick recorded and edited the podcast. Audio comes from the USA Today Network Wisconsin Archive. Mm-hmm.